Welcome to the Convergence Podcast. The Convergence is a space designed for university students, college students, and young adults to explore and deepen their faith. It's a space to think, question, doubt, and hopefully, ultimately, to worship. We're so glad you're here. Hey, everyone. Welcome to the first Convergence of the Year. Just before we hop in, a quick note about this year's theme. This year, we are diving into the practice of what we are calling dailiness. What would it mean for us to practice in our daily, ordinary moments a life of faith? In keeping with this theme, at the Convergence, we're going to explore a theology of the ordinary. If you're interested in what we've got going on and how you can hop on board, Check out the link in the show notes for the 2022-2023 UCM guide. We also have physical copies available, and we'd love for you to have one. This talk, A Spirituality of Being Together, is from our first Convergence of the Year. We'll have our open mic conversation, Convergent Conversations, at Brentview Baptist Church on September 22nd at 7 p.m. We would love to see you there. Okay, one last thing. If you haven't followed us on Instagram yet, check us out. Our handle is at UCM Calgary. That's at UCM Calgary. The link is in the show notes. Okay, here's the first talk, a spirituality of being together. A guy by the name of Karel Chapik wrote a play in, in which he, uh, he used a word that has become really popular, but he used this word for the first time back 101 years ago, and the word that he used is the word robot. So prior to that time, the word robot had not been used, and it was actually his brother Joseph who came up with the word. Uh, he, he drew on this uh, Slavonic word, uh, robota, which means servitude. So uh, Andy Crouch, he writes us that um, servitude or robota is a reference to the uncompensated uh, labor serfs performed in the feudal system. Okay, so you have this, this idea of robota. They end up um, having this thing. So the truth is that robots have always actually kind of been the dream for us, right? Um, there is a show. Now, just to clarify, I was not actually old enough uh, for, I'm not. I'm old, but I'm not that old. Uh, but I was. I'm old enough that this show was playing reruns when I was young. It was a show called The Jetsons. Anybody familiar with The Jetsons? Okay, good. You're old. No, I'm just kidding. Um, so The Jetsons. The Jetsons imagined a future in which it was the era 2062. Okay. 2062, um, and what's crazy is that many of the things that they imagine happening in the year 2062 have actually happened now. Um, so they show things like video calling. I mean, even when I was a kid, video calling was like, you didn't think that that would happen in your lifetime probably, okay? I know I'm showing like how much of a dinosaur I am, but um, video calling, smartwatches, they had smartwatches on there. Um, there were holograms, which now, like, I saw some churches talk, I think this is a stupid idea, but they had some churches talking about, like, hey, maybe we can, like, put a hologram of the pastor on stage, and the pastor can preach as a hologram. Anyway, really dumb. But um, they even had, uh, like, a broom that worked on demand, and you might think, like, we don't have that, but we totally have that. It's called a Roomba. 
You could like program your phone and tell this thing what to do. I hate my Roomba, actually, because it wakes my dogs up every morning. We somehow always forget to reset it. But um, our houses and, and even our backpacks and for many of us, our, our uh, pockets are filled with these things, which really are robots, um, which only existed in the wild imagination of extremely creative thinkers 60 years ago. And so now we are actually surrounded by robots. And so the, the, the future actually came a lot quicker than any of us imagined that the future would come. Uh, it's as we often hear, right? The future is now and, uh, and the future is now and it's actually killing us, right? Um, the end of Chapik's play about robots, and the name of the play was Rosam's Universal Robots. It ended up, uh, the end of the play, spoiler alert, I heard it's not actually that great of a play, so I don't think I'm ruining anything for anybody. But the end of the play ended up with the robots ultimately kind of taking over and destroying the human race. Uh, and now we have all kinds of books and all kinds of movies that say this exact type thing. Um, and some, not all, but there's some who believe that this may actually at some point happen, um, as depicted in the movies, especially with the rise of artificial intelligence and these things, that it is possible, uh, though probably a long way off in the future, that something like that could happen. Um, but there's another way, I think, in which this is already happening, that the robots that we have created are actually taking over and destroying. It's just not in the way that we, we thought. Um, so Andy Crouch, he's, he's this great thinker in our time. And, and one of the things that he says is um, the technology has quite literally given us superpower. Uh, if you think about superpower, he defines superpower as effortless power, right? Now think about um, actual superheroes. The thing about superheroes, they didn't like go to the gym and like work out and become the, the strongest and the best and therefore had superpowers. The whole point of superpowers was that they didn't have to do anything. They, they, they um, kind of gave out minimal effort, next to no effort, but they just had these innate abilities with this crazy amount of power that they could just use. This is like with Superman. Superman didn't like earn his way or work his way into flying. Same thing with Spider-Man. Spider-Man just, you know, he didn't exert a lot of energy spinning a web. He just happened to be a guy who was able to spin a web. And so this is how, um, su how superpowers work. And, you know, how many of us didn't actually want this, right? Like, did anybody really not want to fly when you were a kid? Or possibly now? Flying looks awesome, right? Or, or just, like, be strong, like the Hulk. Like, to not be able to go to the gym and be strong like that. I mean, it's kind of, it, it sounds like the dream. But this is actually what technology has given us. Um, more and more power with less and less effort. And what's happening is with our technology, it's changing us and it's changing the way that we actually see the world. We don't always think that it's doing this, but it's doing this in, in, in really subtle ways. It's changing the way that we see each other, the way we live together. And in particular, with social media, I know you're all thinking like, oh my gosh, are we really gonna go here with the social media bit again? So just stick with me for a few minutes, okay? Social media, what this has given us, according to Andy Crouch, is low friction relationships. Think of this, low friction relationships along with highly visible cues of our status and our standing with others. 
So we now get to have friends, friends, with very, very little friction involved. And this is, I, I think, why like things like that we thought, oh, that'll never happen. But things like sexting are popular now, even with like young kids, because it's high pleasure, low friction, and low to no relationship whatsoever, right? And so, in other words, we've learned how to connect physically, relationally, but with actually very little trust and very little vulnerability. The other thing that technology has done to us that Crouch says is it's given us a reward system which teaches us where we stand in the world, right? So the internet became a thing in the 90s. Now the internet existed before the 90s, but the internet really became a thing in the 90s. I know because I'm so young that you're gonna find this hard to believe, but um, I didn't have, I got my first email account when I went to college. As, as far as I can recall, I think I got my first email account and my first social media account when I went to college, like my first year, um, which was Facebook. And now this was an amazing thing when it happened. Um, it actually really was just like pictures of pets and family and food. That's like what it was, okay? It was just like, oh, a great way to stay in touch with people in a way that we never could before. Uh, but then something shifted. Uh, there's a social psychologist by the name of Jonathan Haidt, and he says this about our current time. So here, he's like, here's where we live, y'all. He said, um, why the past, this is the name of his article in the Atlantic. It's called, why the past 10 years of American life has been uniquely stupid. And his argument is, we're not living in like every generation have, has what we're experiencing. He's like, we actually live in a, a ridiculously stupid time, which will destroy us if we don't do something about it. And so he says this, and we can go to the next slide. He says, um, something went terribly wrong very suddenly. We are disoriented, unable to speak the same language or recognize the same truth which if you even think about how we've talked during the pandemic, right? Who's truth and all this kind of stuff. He said, we can't even recognize the same truth. We are cut off from one another and from the past. Now, perhaps we need to ask, okay, so what went wrong along the way? Or, or maybe even before we ask that, ask what makes us a society successful? And here's what Haidt says. He says, social scientists have identified at least three major forces that collectively bind together successful uh, democracies. He says social capital, and he explains this, you know, extensive social networks with high levels of trust. We have extensive social networks. We just have like no trust, right? Uh, the second thing is strong institutions. You can think of institutions as churches. You can think of institutions as a university, um, strong institutions and shared stories. And he says social media is weak in all three of these. The question is then how? How did social media weaken all three of these? Here's what he says happened. He said, gradually social media users became more comfortable sharing intimate details of their life with strangers and corporations. They became more adept at putting on performances and managing their personal brand activities that might impress others but do not deepen friendship in the way that a private phone conversation will. <laughs> So we use the word connectivity a lot when we talk about social media, but Haidt says that we are connected in a particular way now. We are connected in a way 
um, as performers with each other. We, are, we perform our lives on the stage, which is called social media, uh, and we are brand carriers. And the brand is the thing that we invent about ourselves, even when we don't realize we're inventing it about ourselves. And he says, all of this um, moved us away from friendship instead of towards it. So for Height, um, the year 2009, he dates it. He said the year 2009 is when things went crazy for us. Um, the year 2009 was when Facebook, before this is when like Facebook was, was like poppies and tacos, okay? He says in 2009 what happened is that Facebook released the share button and Twitter released the retweet button. And so we had up to this point been shaped, whether we knew it or not, and whether we know it or not, to be performers. But what happened is that moved us to, now that we were able to share things, it moved us to the next level that we could become, you know, like Twitter famous or, or, or an influencer, a social media influencer overnight. Uh, so now you could have all of this kind of social status like in a day. All of a sudden, millions and millions of people have viewed your thing. Um, I once I write a lot of thoughtful things. One time, I had something shared like uh, I think it was forty thousand times, and it was like one of the dumbest things I ever write. It's so disappointing. Nobody ever shares the thoughtful <laughs> things that you write. You know, that was my one time. The other thing, though, that happened right is that we could then be canceled overnight by people we do not know, right? Um, and so this is the genesis of becoming um, the, a viral generation, which we understood viral, both in the positive sense and the negative sense. And he says two things happened. Once, once we became, had the possibility of being viral by, um, by sharing on Facebook, by retweeting uh, on Instagram, he said dishonesty like rose to the surface and mob mentality rose to the surface, which right? Like social media right now, it's like a giant mob in which everybody hates each other. And we hate strangers. We hate people we don't know. Um, so there's so much to say here, but it's important um, to realize that we have been trained. We do not think we've been trained, but that's not how it works to be a human. We have been trained to be a certain way in the world and to see a certain way in the world. And we have been trained, friends, to be performers who market and sell ourselves in a sense. And we have been learned to take our markers of identity of who we are based on likes or dislikes or shares or retweets from strangers. This is how we have learned to cope in the world. And this has left us angry. It has left us skeptical. It has left us anxious. It has left us dishonest. It has left us unbelievably mean. And it has left us incredibly lonely. I, I won't get into the stats tonight on loneliness, but um, the, we, loneliness was the pandemic before the pandemic. Before the pan People now talk about, oh my goodness, everybody's going to be so lonely. Y'all, we are dying, literally dying, and I can show you the statistics if you want. We are one of the most lonely people who have ever lived on this planet. And we are dying and people are dying younger and younger and younger because of it. So what I'm saying is that the robots have turned on us and the robots actually are destroying us. So the question then is, what does it mean 
for us as Christians in particular to be together in, a, in the world, in this particular world that I'm describing and inhabit this world. Um, how can we have a healthy spirituality of being together? I become convinced, like we live in a really complex time and I'm becoming more and more and more convinced that the way forward is not to find new models and new systems of thought, but it's actually to go back and find ancient wisdom that's already there, which we've ignored. And one of the great sources that, um, that I believe is there from ancient wisdom uh, as teaching us how to live well in community, how to be with each other, is by a guy named Dietrich Bonhoeffer. Anybody heard of Bonhoeffer before? So if you don't know Bonhoeffer, Bonhoeffer was a scholar. He was a Christian leader in Nazi Germany. He was one of the few people who stood up against Nazism and was uh, eventually executed um, for his stance. He actually tried to kill kill Hitler. Like he was in a in a plan to kill Hitler. He was also a pacifist. I'm not quite sure how it all fits together. <laughs> Uh, but he was an incredibly faithful man. And so Bonhoeffer wrote this book called Life Together. I've, I've read a lot of books on community. I don't think there's a, a better book on community than, than Life Together. But the thing is, if you read it, you got to understand, like, he says things on the one hand, uh, which seem to be unbelievably provocative. And you're like, what are you talking about? Like, he says, um, you know, God hates a visionary dreamer. We won't get into that statement tonight. You can bring it up at the, at the Convergent Conversations if you want. But he says things like this, like all throughout, like God hates a visionary dreamer. And the quicker that dream is destroyed and everybody is let down by it, the better. Like that pleases God. And so on the one hand, he's got these really provocative sayings. On the other hand, he's got these things which seem to be like super churchy and super spiritual. Um, but actually, if you listen to his argument, you, it's unbelievably relevant to our time. And what I want to do tonight is to l begin to listen to him again and unpack some of the things that Bonhoeffer said. We don't have time to unpack everything he said in this little book. But there's some wisdom that I think really relates even to the first, first parts of what I was saying, which I think in the past few decades in the church in particular, if we had listened to him, we would have saved ourselves a whole lot of trouble. Anybody ever listen to the Rise and Fall of Mars Hill? Okay, a few of us, like deeply troubling podcasts about the church. And I was reading this book again. I'm like, if only we had been reading Bonhoeffer and like listening to him. And so, but we have the opportunity again to listen to some of his wisdom as we go forward. One of the first things he says is this. He says, uh, we go to the next slide. Christianity means community through Jesus Christ and in Jesus Christ. No Christian community is more or less than this. Okay. We'll leave this here for a second. This is one of these things that sounds like super churchy, super spiritual, and almost has no meaning at first. But as you begin to really follow what he's saying, it plays out in unbelievably relevant ways that confront the robots which have trained us in our time. First, notice um, he's talking about what we would call the ontology of church, the ontology of community. Ontology is like this big word. It means what makes a thing a thing. Okay, so like the foundation of a thing, um, the very essence of a thing, that's the ontology of the thing. Um, for Bonhoeffer, the essence of Christianity is that community comes to us both through Jesus and in Jesus. He said, this is it. Like li literally nothing less than that, but also nothing more than that. Um, but what does he actually mean by this? So let's break it down for a minute. 
He says this, next slide, it means first that a Christian needs others because of Jesus Christ. Okay, again, like what does that actually mean? Uh, Why do we need others because of Jesus? Because he insists, first of all, that salvation is not a thing that we can find inside of ourselves. He just insists upon this. He says, we can never, ever, ever find salvation from within. It comes from outside. And so he says this from the next slide. If somebody asks him, so if somebody comes to a person of faith and asks up, okay, all the, let me just pause here. All the language is super masculine. This was written a long time ago. So forgive Bonhoeffer. He died trying to kill Hitler or like whatever makes you feel better about this language. I am sorry about the language. It's Bonhoeffer, so we'll, we'll give him a pass, okay? If somebody asks him or her, the person of faith, where is your salvation, your righteousness? He can never point to himself. He points to the word of God in Jesus Christ. Okay, in a lot of, in a lot of ways, this seems foreign to us, I think, especially in kind of like a self-help world, right? But think about what this means for us today. We are trained to measure our worth and our belonging based on likes and shares. The more we have, the more likes, the more shares we have, the bigger our ego becomes, the, more, the better we feel about ourselves, the less, you know, the opposite happens. The problem is none of you think that applies to you. So I'll throw myself under the bus here just to say, because this stuff works at subconscious levels, right? So whenever you hear that, you always say, well, I don't really base my identity on I bet you totally do base your identity on this kind of stuff because we all base our identity on this. So um, I wrote, yeah, I've been doing a lot more writing. One of my theological heroes, some of my theological heroes, shared some of my work. And I'm like, oh, wow. Like, I have, uh, like, I don't think that, of course. But, like, I'm like, oh, man, I'm actually, like, I'm, I'm finally writing some decent quality stuff. Of course, you know, the... I'm thinking now because they didn't share anything before that obviously everything else was trash prior to this. But then I write some things after that. And what happens? Um, it never got shared, at which point I'm like, oh, my gosh, none of my arguments are nuanced enough. Uh, I'm, you know, my writing. I just did, I didn't delve deep enough in this particular post. And, you know, it really actually wasn't very theological at all. This post it was a lot more of my reflections, which means I don't really know my audience. Like, I, who am I even writing to right now? You know, you're a terrible writer. And, and then I'm feeling like horrendous about myself. And I'm like, why am I feeling so stupid right now? I'm feeling stupid because I've learned how to base my life off of, off of likes and dislikes and shares and retweets. None of you, of course, do this. Of course we do this. We, 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 all, we all do this, and on and on it goes. Um, now, don't, don't miss this. Here's the thing, though. We think of that as being online, but the thing is, that shapes how we are in this room because it trains us to be a certain type of people. So when we come into this room, we actually do the same thing. We wonder if we measure up enough to everybody else in this room. And if we've sold the brand of ourselves that we created but don't know that we created, and if we're enough. And for most of us, like I said, this is not on the forefront of our mind. It's not something we're thinking of like that all the time, uh, which is perhaps actually the point because it works on us because we're not thinking about it. It works because it's like in our bones. 
that this is who we are. Um, so at the end of the day, most of us are trying to find our salvation, and, and, and that might seem too spiritual a word. So let's say justification. We're trying to be justified by people based on how we are received by other people. And Bonhoeffer says, no. Actually, he's German. He says, nine. <laughs> I use that every time I talk about Bonhoeffer in some way or another because I love saying nine. Um, he says salvation does not come from the inside. It only comes from the outside. The robots have trained us to think that we are justified by what we do. And Bonhoeffer says, no, 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 no. You're a Christian community. You are only saved. You are only accepted. You are only justified in Jesus. But what does he mean? So that's the in part. But what does he mean by through Jesus? And Bonhoeffer says that while salvation comes from the outside, salvation doesn't come from the outside like in a vacuum. It comes from God, but it doesn't come directly from God. It comes through the mouth or the life of another person. This is how God works, he argues. Um, the Apostle Paul, Romans 10, if you want a scripture, because I think it's my only one tonight, some of you will be mad, like, oh my gosh. Um, how then can they call on the one whom they have not believed in? How can they believe in the one whom they have not heard? And how can they hear without someone preaching? And how can anyone preach unless they've been sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news. Christ comes to us through other people. This is actually how God intended it to be. So look what Bonhoeffer says. He said, God has willed that we should seek and find, and we can, yeah, we can seek and find uh, his living word in the witness of a brother or sister in the mouth of a man or a woman. Therefore, the Christian needs another Christian who speaks God's word to them. He needs him again and again when he becomes uncertain and discouraged, like I was when my post wasn't getting enough attention, right? Uh, but about a ton of other things. For by himself, he cannot help himself with bel without belying the truth. What he's saying here is, you cannot say, like, I'm really doubting, and then also be the person to provide the solutions to that doubt at the same time. He's like, one of you's lying. So you need somebody else who can speak the word of God and speak the truth to you. He needs his brother solely because of Jesus Christ. The Christ, check this out, the Christ in his own heart is weaker then the Christ in the word of his brother, his own heart is uncertain. His brother's is so sure. And at first, this actually seems like a problem if you think about it, because, you know, we already feel like our identity comes from other people. <laughs> but this is not what Bonhoeffer is saying to us. He's saying what you get from your sister or brother is not affirmative words. It's not constructive criticism. What you get from them is Jesus Christ. God, who is working from the outside, will show up to you in your sister or in your brother. Not in likes, not in retweets. Jesus Christ himself will make himself present to you. Not only that, but that we need to trust the Jesus in the heart of the other people around us more than we trust the Jesus in our own heart. And this is fascinating in two regards. So first, one of the ways that the robots have trained us to, is to see everybody else as a competitor and to see life as a competition. And this leads to either massive distrust, right, which is exactly what we're seeing now. We have distrust. Everything We're all relativists now, right? Like, 
I've seen pastors saying, like, what truth? Who even knows what truth is? And I'm like, you're a pastor. You can't say that. (laughs) Or um, using other people to help us move up in the world and feel more significant about ourselves. To believe in the Christ in the heart of the other person more than we believe in Christ in the heart of our own selves teaches us how to not be competitors and how to not use people as a means to an end. The second thing, though, it confronts is it confronts our self-deception because we can deceive ourselves so easily. So much later in the book, Bonhoeffer, he does this brilliant thing where he talks about confession of sin. And um, he says, you know, most of us, we, we're, we're comfortable confessing our sin like to each or to God. Like, no problem. Like, I'll get in my, you know, hey, God, I'm really sorry about that horrendous thing I just did. He said, but, um, but we won't go and confess our sin to like, somebody in this room, for example. And he says, do you realize how stupid this is? That you would, you feel willing to stand before a holy God, but somehow you think you have no problem confessing your sin to a sinless holy God, but you have a problem confessing your sin to another sinner? What is the deal here? Look at what he says. I mean, this is... This is a Bonhoeffer mic drop right here. He says, next slide. Why should we find it easier to go to a brother or sister than to to a holy God? But if we do, we must ask ourselves whether we have not been deceiving ourselves with our confession of sin to God, whether we have not rather been confessing our sins to ourselves and also granting ourselves absolution. He goes, you might be so deceived that you think you're repenting to God. Maybe you're just repenting to your own self and you're forgiving your own self. So, my sisters and brothers, this type of living will free us from distrust, it will free us from competition, but it will also free us from self-deception. Okay, we're almost done. Um, Here's what we've said so far, okay? Salvation comes from the outside, from God alone, but it comes from God, but through someone else, through the mouth, through the heart, through the life of another believer. And in fact, that we need to trust the word of Christ in the heart of our sister or the heart of our brother more than we actually trust that word within our own heart. So what does this mean then about how we relate to each other? Now, here's where it gets very interesting. Bonhoeffer says some things that may shock us. He says this, within the spiritual community, there is never nor in any way any immediate relationship to one another. Just think about this for one second. He says, when we are in here, there is never any immediate relationship between me and you or between you and anyone else, ever. And he's like insistent upon it. And y'all, this is incredibly important. One of the things that the robots have taught us to do is to control other people. Even if we don't know or even if they don't know that we are controlling them. What we can do, we can lock other people in place on our device, and we can zoom in to see whatever we want to see on them uh, without any consent, without any knowledge of them, because we feel I have direct access to another person. I can do whatever I want. And we've been trained to think of of people in this way. Um, Look at what Bonhoeffer says, though. He says, I must release the other person from every attempt of mine to regulate, coerce, and dominate him or her, with, even with my love. 
I can never coerce them. I can never dominate them. I can never do anything. The other person needs to retain his or her independence of me to be loved for what he or she is as one for whom Christ uh, became man, died, and rose again, for whom Christ brought forgiveness of sins and eternal life. Because Christ has long since acted decisively for my brother and sister before I could even begin to act. I must leave him or her their freedom to be, it, to be Christ's. I must meet them only as a person that they already are in Christ's eyes. I, th- that's, that's a mouthful, but the, the point here that he's making is that we don't actually, in Christian community, we don't have direct access to each other. He says Jesus actually always stands between us. Therefore, we must never seek to remove Jesus out of the way, have direct access to another person, because it always leads to regulating that person, coercing that person, and dominating the other person. But they don't actually belong to me. Instead, they are attached to God, who was working in them long before I ever showed up. And so Bon, he says it, he says it very strongly. He says, we do not live with other Christians for the sake of acquiring them. And this is one of the things that we do when we come together sometimes in community and why our communities fall apart so quickly because we think that we're here together to acquire each other. He goes, you are here. Jesus stands between every single relationship in this room. How dare you ever try to have direct access that you think you can know what's best. You don't know anything of what's best for another person. I'm already working in them. There's so much that could be said here, but uh, we'll move on and close. What do we do with all this? There's a real temptation, and it happens over and over again, to take the things which the robots have taught us and to bring them into a place like this and to stamp the name Jesus on it. I'm convinced that one of the greatest tasks of our life is to learn how to live and be with each other in a way that both shapes our own lives in a way that is different from how we're being shaped by the robots, but is also a way that our lives are being shaped to be a witness to who Jesus is in the world, in a world in which people are dominating everyone and everybody's simply a pawn in the game. We learn how to be with each other in a different way with Christ who is the foundation and the way of our community. So there's this um, spiritual teacher by the name of Leanne Payne, and she once wrote this, we either contemplate or we exploit. We either contemplate or we exploit, one of the two. And Andrew Crouch, he breaks it down for us. He said, exploitation asks, what can this person, or for that matter, this thing do for me? And this is the temptation in any community to come and ask, what can they do for me? Contemplation asks, who or what am I beholding? without regard to their usefulness for me. And so when in Christian community, we, don't, we actually don't contemplate each other directly even. We contemplate Christ in our sister or in our brother. In other words, every time that we look at somebody, and this includes anybody in the world, we are contemplating a mystery. Like how dare we mishandle a mystery? But this is, this is what we are being taught that the, the mystery of the very God who is love is to be contemplated by us, never exploited. So I guess I, do, I wonder, you know, with all this, I wonder what habits that we could practice which will teach us to begin to 
behold each other through Christ and in Christ instead of exploiting each other as the world is teaching us to do more and more. And I wonder how we can posture ourselves together to receive the word of Christ spoken through our sisters and brothers. What would it mean if the key to our spiritual journey towards God did not lie in our own hearts, but that key actually existed in the heart or hearts of those people around us? That somehow our maturing in Christ actually means finding the key in, a, in the heart of our sister, in the heart of our brother, and unlocking something within us. You know, and what would it mean if, if you were to find that key and learn that way of finding the key during your life at university with those around you? What would it mean for us to contemplate, not exploit, or as Bonhoeffer says, to enter into common life as not as demanders, but as thankful recipients? So I'm going to finish. This is a weird way to finish. I'm going to finish by throwing something out here, which I, I will not have time to unpack. But I think will at least be something helpful for us to think about over the next couple of weeks. Um, for those who have never come to a Convergent Conversations, Convergent Conversations is different from what we do here. We'll meet back here in two weeks and uh, we'll just start a conversation. Probably Bob and I will just start talking about some of these things and we'll set like up. We'll set a mic up. Um, and you can, you literally just come up at any point and ask a question about tonight, ask a question about what's happening and give a thought, um, give some pushback, give any of these kinds of things. And so it's like an hour long, we just come together and have a discussion. It's like a, an open mic Q and A, Q and R. It's not always answers, but we have responses. Okay. Because I really believe that, that the spirit works as we begin to dialogue with each other. The spirit is present um, not just in the person who happens to be kind of presenting a talk or whatever, but is present in the room. The Christ in the hearts, uh, your hearts, is actually stronger um, than the Christ in my heart, even as I, as I speak these things. Okay, so here's the thing that I want us to talk about. Um, I've talked about the, the, the way that the robots are, talk, are taking over, okay? There's this public intellectual uh, from Nashville, Tennessee. His name's David Dark. And he's a fascinating dude. Um, and Dark writes that, you know, we have become, as we become performers and as we create our own personas and our own brands, and as we kind of live that life out on the stage of social media and other things, he says, look, we don't just hold the robots anymore. We're living inside the robot. And we need to begin to perform robot soft exorcisms. <laughs> this, is his, this is his big concept, robot soft exorcisms, that we are looking, we inhabit a robot. Some of us inhabit multiple robots. It, he'll, he'll talk about what he means here in a minute. He says, but inside the robot is an actual person. How do we bring the actual flesh and blood person whom Jesus loves out of the robot? How do they bring us out of our robot? Um, in a way that doesn't damage or kill us in the process. Here's what he says, and then we'll, we can pick this up. If my desire to maintain a certain overhead over the years left me at the control panel of a giant robot, which I discovered was working with other robots to deport people, traumatize children, crush dissent, and destroy the possibility of human thriving for most people, I'd welcome someone anyone who spied a living person staring down from the window that is the robot's eyeball sockets and tried to reach me and offer a strategy 
for exiting the robot before I died inside it, or offered instructions for stopping the robots without hurting the people inside them. The robots are what the Apostle Paul referred to as the principalities and powers. We call them brands, platforms, parties, offices, and follower sets. We're right to wrestle against them, the robots, while remembering that we're to avoid wrestling against flesh and blood, the human beings looking down from us through the window slash eye socket of the robots. What would it mean without harming each other in the process to pull each other out of our robots in order to be actual people together in the world? Something to ponder. (laughs) 